Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. It's the last inch that I won't give up. You know, like I'm not necessarily courageous, um, but I am defiant, you know, and that, that's like, you know, and, and those are those are wildly different positions. And, and, and even in terms of stance, like combative stance, like that's wildly different. A courageous person leans in, right? They're going in for the fucking punch. They're, they're running right up to the enemy. I don't know that I'm that. You know, I don't know that I'm that. But at the, at, like I am at the very, like dig your heels in, like that last inch, I won't give up. I will not give up. The last inch of my life is mine. The la- and I've had a few of these moments in my life where I don't have the courage to fight, but I do have the bravery to stick in my fucking heels. And no matter what happens, I'm not going to give up that last inch. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age, led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production, 
to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. AJ, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Very welcome, man. It's always a pleasure to hang out with you, my friend. Well, uh... You know, it is really, really cool to have you back here, uh, especially because we haven't actually had you on the show since the name was changed to Unmistakable Creative. And, you know, I, I've always said you're easily one of the most influential people in my life and had a, a huge impact uh, on the way I've gone about my work, uh, you know, in getting me to think a lot less like a marketer and much more like an artist. But since you were last year, um, you know, our show has grown quite a bit and there's a lot of new listeners. So on that note, for the people in our audience who, who may not know about you and your story, uh, can you tell us a, a bit about yourself, your background, your story, your journey, and how that has led to everything that you're up to now? Sure. I mean, first of all, I just want to say thank you for having me on. It's always a pleasure to hang out with you. Um, and you know, as far as you saying me as, you know, me being an influential person in your life, Srini, you know, I'm just a gypsy from New York city. So <laughs> any, a, anybody saying anything like that about me, man, that's, um, it's, it's an honor and it, and it means the world to me. So I appreciate it. Uh, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll kind of start from the beginning with, with my journey and then you can kind of curtail me as, as we go on and let, and let me know, you know, where you want me to, uh, where you want me to go if I ramble on too much, but basically, um, you know, I'll, I'll start from the very, very beginning when, when I was, um, when I was in high school, I was basically, a, I was a kid, I was a, I was a bit of a punk. I was a kid who almost got thrown out of high school uh, a few different times. Um, and in the end I was just a jock. I was a guy who could put a nine inch ball into an 18 inch hoop. And towards the end of my high school career, I had thought to myself like, okay, you know, maybe I should consider going to university. And, uh, I'd started looking up, uh, pamphlets and whatnot. And I was, I was, you know, I was getting offers from different places to, um, to play basketball in university. And uh, there was one particular college I was looking at. I went to my high school guidance counselor and I asked her, Hey, you know, do you think, um, it's funny cause Melissa and I, and my wife have been together for so long. She was there in the room with me at the time. And I asked, uh, my high school guidance counselor, um, you know, what do you think about this university? What do you think about, you know, me going to study there? And she kind of stopped me right in the middle and she said, hey, hey, AJ, AJ, listen, a guy like you should really, you know, not focus on going to university. You should consider um, going to trade school and maybe becoming a mechanic. And she hands me this pamphlet to, um, to a trade school to become a mechanic. Now, nothing wrong with any... Um, with mechanics or, or with that career. I've got a lot of friends who are happy mechanics. I actually do. Uh, but that is not what you want to hear when you're 17 years old, uh, trying to s- decide what your life will be and, and what you're going to do with the rest of your life. And that, from that moment, that was uh, Miss Mitchell, who was my high school guidance counselor. She, she was representative of a great, litany a chorus of people who had told me what a fuck up i was going to be in my entire in, in my life and it it something snapped in me and i just thought to myself we, you know fuck you miss <laughs> mitchell and and fuck everyone who had ever thought that i was going to be 
a drug dealer in life or that I was going to be a fuck up in life or that I wasn't going to amount to anything. And from that moment on, I resolved myself to ensure that, that my life would be of value and that I would be able to prove all of these people wrong. There were so many people in my life that fit that bill and that had, that had kind of invested that sort of language in me for so many years. And, um, you know, I did get into university, uh, uh, you know, good for me. I ended up getting into that particular university, which Ms. Mitchell uh, said that, you know, I couldn't, I, I, I shouldn't even try to try to get into. Um, I mean, I squeaked in. Um, and then once I was in, I, I decided to myself, you know what, I'm going to prove everybody wrong. I focused entirely on academics. Uh, I remember at the age of 18, right before I entered university, I was looking at majors and stuff and I had never, you know, I didn't have anybody guiding me in terms of what you should study or I didn't have any sort of influences in that regard, but I was just paging through in, in Anna Barnes and Nobles when those still existed, this book that showed you majors and then the only thing that it was a graph. It was a graph book, so it would show you a, a particular line of study and then it would show you earning potential over time. Uh, so was, I was just looking for up and to the right, you know, as an unsophisticated 18 year old, how do you derive the value or the definition of sex of, of success other than, um, other, other than money, right? I mean, that is that uh, money and fame. And that is all that you have at 17 or 18 years old in order to give you the, the, the sort of parameters of what success is. So I looked in that book and I paged through and I found accounting and finance and I realized that, wow, you know, in, in a finance game and accounting and finance, you can make, you know, as much money you can, as, as you could possibly want. That was where I should focus my attention. So I ended up going to university. I graduated uh, number one in my class, summa cum laude with a 4.0 um, GPA. Uh, and towards the end of my university career, um, I, I had, you know, basically every offer from any firm that, that I wanted, to, uh, consulting firms, auditing firms, uh, some of the big four, PricewaterhouseCoopers, Accenture, and, and whatnot, I ended up taking the biggest offer from the largest firm uh, that was offering. I didn't care where I would work, where I would be working or who I'd be working for. All I cared was about how many zeros were at the end of my signing bonus Um. I took I took that offer and then I spent basically the majority of my early 20s making vertical leaps from one firm into the other in order to extract even more earning potential over time, uh, which landed me to a place where, and as you well know, Serenity, because you and I have talked about it for you know a few times, um, I was in my mid-20s. Um, I was in, in Manhattan, in New York City, uh, at a corner office overlooking the entire city. Um, I was making an absurd amount of money. I had an even higher bonus. Um, and, you know, the, I, the only problem was, you know, it was this tiny infinitesimal problem I had in my life, which was I, I, I hated my life. And I hated everything that I had been doing up until that point. But I had no way out. You know, because once you once you start going down a path, particularly at you know in in, in terms of youth, and at, at at a very young age, once you start navigating down a path, it's very difficult to figure out. Well, how do I? How did I even get here in the first place? 
So it, that led me to a place on December 31st, 2007 at, you know, in the middle of a pretty successful career by any stretch of the imagination uh, in New York, um, my boss uh, calls me into his, uh, his office and he told me, hey, you know, you're, you're getting this promotion. And I knew that we, he and I had talked about it before, but this was it. Like, you're, you're getting it. You know, the new year is starting. You got this promotion we've been talking about. Uh, obviously, it came with a pay raise. It came with more kind of credence, more everything. In a finance game in New York City, it basically meant that I meant it. As long as I shut the fuck up and follow the rules for the next 40 years, I'm going to be straight. You know, I, like, I, I'm good financially, which is that game that I was involved in. And I kind of took this news and I walked out of his office and I walked back into my own, which is right down the hall. And I closed the door behind me and I just started weeping because I realized that I was trapped. And I realized that there was no way ever that I would ever be able to walk away from that type of money again. And any idea that I had of living a life of adventure, of meaning, of purpose was gone and every concept, every dream that I had in a moleskin that sat in my desk for many, many years was dead. And that I would relinquish my life up until the fates of this world that I had inherited. And, and it was profoundly depressing. And, and I know now, you know, I'm, I'm old enough now, and I'm not a young man, 33 years old. I know, I'm old enough now to know that, like, that's very cinematic, but that's my life. So... That was the most depressing moment of my life. And, and I sat there and I wept and I wept for a long time, man. And, and I saw, and this is the only time this has ever happened to me in my entire life. I saw a vision of myself then um, as, as a 70 year old man looking back at me at that moment, mourning the glory of this life that, that could have been. And, and that was it, you know. I mean, my life was was scripted, and it, and it was finished. And and I just kept that this 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 you know somber, you know, bone chilling depression hit me, and it had been building up for quite some time. And as I sat with that for quite a few moments, nothing else had ever occurred into my mind. Like, but basically, in my mind, I was I was done, Serenity. I was like, I was finished. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it ju- I just snapped. And this one thought occurred to me that you always have a choice, actually. And that I could walk out right then and right there. And I could leave everything that I had ever known, everything that I had ever fought for. I could leave my career I could burn all the bridges in my career. I could leave my academic history. Everything that took me from that moment as a young man in a very successful career back to the moment when Miss Mitchell was telling me basically what a fuck up I was going to be. I could take that entire, all that baggage, that plight, that anger and vitriol that even led me to that moment because that enti- I mean the impetus was polluted the moment that I started on that ascent was not about me it was about proving everybody wrong so when when the seed is polluted everything that comes after it everything all the progeny of it is 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 going to be perverted 
uh, and there, and and that was my life. And I could leave that all behind right then and there. I could walk out, and I could start fresh. I could start with nothing. And and I do just want to caveat, and this is you know just a caveat because many people are like, oh, well, you were in banking, well, you left, you had a ton of money. This is four days before my wedding that I left. It was December 31st, 2007. I got married on January 4th, 2008, four days before my wedding. I had a ring that I paid for. I had a honeymoon that I paid for. I had a wedding that I paid for. And I was stupid and young and in finance in New York City in 2008. I had no money. You spend more than you earn. I had nothing financially. I was broken. And and I all of this was washing in my mind. All of this was kind of ruminating and marinating in my in my young mind at the time but all that i recognize is that if i took this if i took this deal if i signed it and i moved on that i would be that guy for the rest of my life and the prospect and the 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 premise of living a life that was somebody else's was much more i mean the fear of that was much more prevalent than the fear of how I was going to pay rent the next month. So I, I, I grabbed my stuff. I, I walked out the door. I did walk into my boss's office, and he got the tail end of a Shakespearean soliloquy about the system and, and, <laughs> and about the way, the, the, the way that things should be. And, and, uh, and then I walked out. I walked out to the elevator, and, and I took – you know, I, I, I took the elevator down the street, and for the first time, when I hit the street, people hear me say this, and I know it sounds cinematic, but the reality, and I always say this, this is my life. That was the first time in my adult life that I recognized that I was free. And everything that I've done from here on out, so if any, any of you know your listeners, anybody goes and checks out what Misfit is or whatever, I mean, all of that was born not from a desire to start a company or to leave one company to another. I, I wasn't smart like that. I'm not like Pam Slam. I'm not side hustling. All, you know, I'm not one of those people. I, I was just evacuating a life plan gone horribly wrong um, to pursue a life of intention, of meaning and purpose, and a life that at the very least was flamboyantly mine. And that was... That 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 that's the that at least the impetus of my story. I don't know. I, I might have rambled on a bit too much there. <laughs> oh, this is why I'm so glad that we got to have you back here. Uh, so many things I want to ask you about. Uh, so you know, I want to do something that I haven't gotten to do with you before. Sure, uh, man. Which is to go even further back into the story prior to the Miss Mitchell moment, uh, and ask you about things that happened in your childhood growing up um, that you feel were formative experiences that influenced, um, you know, the way you chose to live your life later on. Sure. Sure. Um, any, anything specific or just, just random? In general. Bro? I mean, I, I do have one specific that I want to ask you about that I haven't gotten to yet, but uh, in general, I'd be curious. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, childhood is a very long time. I think I, you know, I had an interesting childhood. My father passed away when I was 14 years old. Mm-hmm. That was probably very, you know, I mean, I know that was very formative for me. Um, we moved around a little bit um, for a variety of different reasons. Um, you know, but there were some poignant moments that I look back at and and I remember, I mean, my dad I was, was, a, I mean, just a fantastic man, a fantastic man. Um, but early on in his life, he had a really, really rough life. And, 
and I've never talked about this before publicly, actually, but um, my dad was involved in the, he was, he was a, a cocaine dealer um, in Southern California. And he used to, he used to run drugs across the border. And actually, there's a lot of friends of mine that are lawyers that if they look up Leon versus United States Supreme Court, they'll find out that my dad's final, you know, this final case that put him in prison for quite a while, um, that it changed um, search and seizure laws in the United States. It was actually, a, you know, it was a, quite a big deal. Um, and so, I mean, that was like, that was in the, er- the early, early, early days of, of me as me as a young man and my dad had a really spiritual experience when he was um when he was in prison and he ended up getting out of prison and leaving his life cold turkey leaving that former life cold turkey um which is fantastic and that was probably when i was four or five and then he died when i was 14 so there's this pocket of time that i had him you know as this really formidable character in my life and there's so many moments that that I remember my dad you know kind of teaching me things and there was one particular time (laughs) that I I walked into uh it was when I was like nine years old so it was four you know six years before he um five years before he passed away um and just a few years after all that that I had mentioned I was and I walked into his office and I, I was talking about some, you know, car, this, this uh, remote control car. And I remember this is the 80s, so that was a big thing. Now kids are into fucking drones and whatever the <laughs> fuck. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, any, any, any millennial that's listening to this is like, what the fuck? A remote control car? But, like, I was, I was so about this remote control car that I wanted. And I came in, and I was like, Dad, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I... And he's like, no, 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 yeah, yeah, you know, later on, later on, you know, just come back in like, you know, a couple hours. And he was working at the time. And then I came back and, and he was, and he's like, no, 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 come back in another half an hour. And then I came in, I came in again to the office. And after this happened two or three times when he just kept on, you know, shoving me off and I came back in and then finally he turns around and he's like, and he looks at me and he's like, can't you see that I'm working boy? Can't you see that I'm trying to get things done right now? And you keep on coming. You, you're interrupting me. And he just screamed at me for like seven minutes. Now, this is my dad who was, you know, you're not involved in the, the drug trade in Southern California in the 70s and 80s without being a tough guy. This is, you know, my dad's a, a big, you know, burly motherfucker. So it's very scary for this guy to yell, you know. And it was mortifying. And I kind of just, you know, shrunk back and my little heart was broken. And I started to walk out of my dad's office. And then right before I closed the door behind me, he grabs my shoulder through the crack in the door. He rips me right close to him. He grabs the back of my neck. He pulls it right up into, he pulls my face right into his face so that my eyes are like beating right into the back of his and he looks at me and he says, listen to me, son, and listen to me well. You never, ever, ever stop asking. You never, ever stop going until you get exactly what you want. You don't listen to me. You don't listen to anybody. You understand me? 
And I just sat there. And even at that age, I could understand the profundity of that statement in the midst of everything that had happened. And he's, and, 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 and that was it. He kind of just let me go, you know, from that moment, he gave me a big hug and he let me go. And, you know, ever since that, that moment in my life at a very young age, I, you know, I've always kind of, no matter what challenge was ahead of me, no matter what I was interested in or what I really wanted to go after, you know, you keep on going till you get exactly what you want. And, and that was something my dad taught me at a young age, which I've never really talked about before. Okay, so two questions come from that. Huh? Um, the first is uh, around overcoming environments. Uh, I mean, you could have easily ended up in a life of crime when I mean, you had a dad that was incarcerated, and yet you didn't. Your path was literally the exact opposite. Uh, so I'm wondering, you know, what it is that enables that. Do you think that that is inherently built into certain people like you, uh, or can it be learned? And if so, how, and then the other question is around overcoming significant losses in our lives, because I can't fathom the amount of grief that the loss of a father would create, uh, you know, especially for somebody that was as young as you are when it happened. Uh, so I'm just really curious how you navigated that period. Uh, after your father's death? Um, yeah, I mean, that's, um, well, on, on the one end, I think that, you know, I think, you know, my, my, my dad was a reformed dude when, when he ended up coming out of prison. Now he wasn't alive for much longer after that, but he was, he was a, a good person, a good human. And I think that certainly helped, you know, um, and, on you know in terms of dealing with the death of somebody that's that close to you you know it's very difficult particularly it depends on you know i mean in a in a cuban household it's very patriarchal so you know it is the father figure is not just you know a father it is like it's the patriarch right i mean there's a lot of cultures that are like that where it's so centered around this and that's where your your hope lies and that's where the strength lies and all that um, it's, it, I mean, for me in particular, it was very, very, very difficult to, to overcome that. But I recognized even at a young age and I was 14 when, when he died, it was, he died, um, 13 days after my 14th birthday. Um, I had about a year of pretty profuse depression, um, it was pretty significant depression. Um, but I'll tell you, towards the end of this year, I, I, was, I was playing basketball, um, and I met this guy that I'd been introduced to. His, his name was Ernest, young kid, really super nice guy. Uh, and he was the first person from, from the continent of Africa that I'd ever met before. And, you know, 14 fucking years old. I mean, when, when, I mean, unless you go to multicultural, you know, like, when are you going to get that? And he, I can't remember, it was was somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, might have been Sudan, uh, so young that I can't, you know, countries and stuff, you know, at that time, you know, you're an idiot. And so what the fuck do you know? And I remember, you know, during that year feeling really, really, I mean, just 
broken and sorry for myself for everything that had happened to me. And it wasn't just my dad, it was a few things or whatever. And then I met Ernest, and Ernest and I were, were, were shooting together, playing basketball. And I asked him about his family and this. And he's like, oh, no, I don't. You know, I lost my family. I'm like, oh, what do you mean, Ernest? And he was like, oh, well, um, a couple months ago, um, these people, militants, came into my village. And they killed my father. And they raped my mother. And they killed my siblings. And I was hiding in a corner so they didn't find me. And they left me alone. And then he had been rescued from that, from I believe it was the UN, and then ended up through some magical sequence of events making his way to the United States. Um, it, was, it was a few months in between those two episodes. And that all of a sudden there was, you know, <laughs> a heavy dose of perspective that was injected in my life. You know what I mean? Because I, I mean, I was dealing with what I considered a significant line for me and my concept. It certainly was, but the moment that you encounter somebody else in a completely different context that that's like, I mean, I couldn't even fathom going through what Ernest went through. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that, that, that changed um, that 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 changed my perspective, and it helped kind of tilt my eyes a bit more towards the horizon, and 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 towards you know hope and and almost gratitude that yeah that I mean this is a horrible situation to have had happened to me, but fuck, there are people out there with so much worse, and that's not an abstract statement once you meet somebody in that position. You know what I mean? why then do you think that we can be equally consumed by grief and shit and horrible things when our suffering is nowhere near the magnitude of that and i'm asking this for personal reasons uh i i don't well i mean i don't think it's bad that that we're actually i mean so so there's a level of that was a moment that i had right and that was a poignant moment that i believe you know, serendipitously, providentially, even maybe I needed at that time, right? We all have to deal with the plight of our own existence. And that existence is going to, is going to be different and it's going to be tempered differently. And the context of that existence will depend on where we grew up, where we were born and all that. I don't necessarily believe in the sense that we don't, you, you don't deal with that existence because you have to, you know, you, you, you always, uh, uh, have to um, kind of be 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 not not only cognizant but s- always discussing the fact that another existence is is there or 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 exists in the world that is much worse than your own. You know, so I mean it's it's difficult. So like I don't I, don't, I mean I think that like there's a lot of people in the Western world that grew up in, in the developed world and, you, and we grew up with easier lives than than people obviously that that grew up say in in uh, some dire parts in south sudan mm-hmm. you know having said that if you don't have interactions with people if you've never had an interaction with a person from that area then then it's not you wouldn't necessarily even a really truly in, you know like have, 
it synthesized that. You know what I'm saying? You wouldn't necessarily interact with that. And I don't think that that uh, you know I, I I'm I, I don't place judgment on on any one of us, myself included, that that deals with the content. You know, I mean, w- look at the end of the day, I was a 14 fucking year old kid that my dad died. I was sad. You know what I'm saying? I was I was sad and I was hurt. And there are people that have it far worse than me. And that moment with Ernest that I'm very grateful for, and I've never met Ernest since, and there was no internet at the time, so like there was no way of keeping in contact with <laughs> Ernest. You know, like there I wish I could contact Ernest and tell him like what a profound moment that was. I only met him that one day, and it was such a profound moment for me. Um, you know, but at the same time. I'm a 14 year old kid that like, you know, no matter how you slice it, that's fucked up, you know, the, that you have a scenario like that happen. So I don't think it's about judgment being placed, um, depending on where you are. I think context helps, you know, I think it's certainly, it certainly helps. Um, and I'm speaking in particular to a moment that I had, you know, and I think we all have those moments in different ways, you know? Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age, led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All right, let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit. Sure. Uh, I want to go to that Miss Mitchell moment, and I want to ask you two things about sure. it. Why do you think some people are informed by moments like that and others are defined by moments like that? And then how do you let go of this sense that you're trying to prove everyone wrong? Because I can tell you there have been numerous moments in my life where I feel a lot of my accolades, achievements, and accomplishments have been at certain moments driven by this need to prove a bunch of people wrong, like people who relationships that didn't work out, you know, teachers who think I'd amount to nothing. Same story. Yeah. Uh, so those are the two questions. Why are some people informed by moments like that and others defined by them? And then how do you let go of that sense that you're trying to prove people wrong? 
You know, I mean, the first question, that's very difficult. I, I, I don't know why certain people are informed by moments like that and others are defined. You know, I, I, I'm not sure. You know, I think in my case in particular, I have always been, it's the last inch that I won't give up. You know, like I'm not necessarily courageous, um, but I am defiant, you know. And that, that's like, you know, and, and those are, those are wildly different positions. And, and, and even in terms of stand, like combative stance, like that's wildly different. A courageous person leans in, right? They're going in for the fucking punch. They're, they're running right up to the enemy. I don't know that I'm that, you know, I don't know that I'm that, but at the, like I am at the very, like dig your heels in like that last inch, I won't give up. I will not give up. The last inch of my life is mine. The la- and I've had a few of these moments in my life where I don't have the courage to fight, but I do have the bravery to stick in my fucking heels and no matter what happens, I'm not going to give up that last inch. And, and I think that that's important for, for several people because there are people much more courageous than I am, you know, certainly out there in life that, you know, barrel through life very, you know, with, with a sense of purpose at all times, right? They, they always had a sense of purpose or they, they, they'll just go through and fucking, you know, right at the battle, right? I'm not, the, I have not always been that way historically. Um, but defiance is something that I don't think is talked about enough. And I think that's the difference, right? I mean, I think, I think that would probably, if I was, if I was pressed to it, the difference would be in defiance because people that get railed against are usually people that are marginalized anyway. I certainly was, mm-hmm. you know, I was marginalized. And usually when you're marginalized, you're up against the fucking rails anyway. You're right. You're, you're right on the, on the, on the edge of what's acceptable. Right. But that moment for me, that was, that was her trying to push me across the edge. You don't belong here. You know, you don't belong here. You don't belong in the life that you think that you belong. You don't, you're not, you're not one of us, whatever us meant to her, right? You're not, you know, you're, you're out there. And that was a, that was a moment. I've had a few of those moments in my life, but that moment I wasn't willing to be pushed across the line. Now I was only an inch from the fucking line, (laughs) but I wasn't, I wasn't willing to be pushed across the line. And I think that, I think that's an important distinction. And, and I hope that, that people, and, and, and it may sound confusing, but I hope people will see the distinction between courage and defiance. Um, because I certainly don't consider myself a courageous person, uh, you know, at, at all, or a fearless person. I may, you know, I, 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 but I do consider myself a defiant person, but I think a defiant stance actually is, is a very, like that's, that's what makes a life in many times because a lot of times we don't have the strength to fight. You know, a lot of times we don't, we, we've been, you know, you're emotionally thrashed. You don't, you've taken hit after hit, loss after loss. You feel it. It's palpable. You don't, you don't have the fucking strength to muster to get up for a fight. But, you know, can you just stay standing? until you can't see straight anymore. Like, will you just stick? And that's, 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 um, so sorry to hamper on about that, but that, that I think is an important distinction. Um, 
And then your second question, which I have now forgotten, Serenity. No worries. Uh, how do you let go of that sense that you need to prove all these people wrong? Yeah, the, the, I mean that that's that's a bit more difficult. You know, I don't. Th- <laughs> I mean, for me, it's like I wish. You know, you know, you and I have these conversations, and we have them on air, but also we have them together. You yeah. know, we're just hanging out and having drinks or whatever, and. It's and I'm always I always try to be honest about these things. I don't want to pretend to be some fucking rockets. You know, I'm not Tony Rock. I don't have no idea. You know, like there are certain things that have happened to me in my life where I'm just very grateful to be out of it. Um, in that moment, I, you know, and I'll be honest. You know, I, I realized very late into the game that. I had allowed my entire life to become about decisions that were polluted from the, from the very beginning. And that was fucking scary, dude. You know, when I was into an incredibly successful career in finance in New York city, I mean, you can't get any better in that world than where I was at that age. You know, you really, in terms of position, you can't, but to be there and then, but to, to be there and to be sad, you know, not, not to be there and to be happy that you proved everybody wrong and you're making 10 times as much money as fucking Miss Mitchell or any of the other clowns that you used to know. Like, you know, not, there was no happiness. There was no gloating. There was no kind of – it was just sadness. And every degree of success that I had in addition to that, I just felt more sad. I was just more sad. I mean, it, you, you, the thing about it is like the thing about success is like if you're if you were if you're succeeded something that you fucking hate, then you hate yourself more and more at every turn for being good at the thing that you fucking despise. You know, it's it's diminishing returns. It really fucking is. But there's no way you, there are no other choices. I didn't have any other choices. I wasn't given any other choice. In my I didn't know what the choices were. My only choice was. To prove everybody wrong tonight. And so like I was lost, dude. I was lost. And I was lost. And 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 the worst bit of it was when I recognized that I was in a prison of my own creation, that I had like I was incarcerated, but but the, the, the door was locked from the inside and I was the one holding the key. Like I I was I was the one who who did this whole thing. It was it was it was a profoundly depressing thing because I didn't know where to go from there. You know, and in my particular case, I had, I, you know, I had this moment and I think a lot of us have these moments actually, but, um, I, I, you know, I had a particular moment where it's like, I recognize that if I did not leave that day at that moment that I was going to be this dude for the rest of my life. You know, that I was going to, I was going to live some other fucking dude's life. For the rest of mine. I mean, people hear that and it sounds like I get it. Like I hear, you know, it sounds very hallmarky. It sounds like something that you could put on an Instagram fucking photo and it might get a few <laughs> likes, but it's like, it's the fucking truth. Like that was actually, that's my life. That is my fucking life, man. Like I'm looking at it and I'm like, if I don't, 
I have to leave everything, dude. I have to leave everything. I have to, I have to leave Miss Mitchell behind. I have to leave all these clowns behind. I have to leave, and in addition to that, everything after that because the route was polluted. So I have to leave my educational history, my career up until that point. I had nothing else, man. I had no other opportunities. I had no network. I don't have any family to speak of that knew anybody in any fucking corners of the world. I was fucking finished if I left that world. When I left, I remember my boss yelling at me, you'll never fucking work in this town again. It was a very New York moment. You know? <laughs> He's like, just never fucking work in this town again. You know, it was just like, but it was like, I, you know, I just burned every fucking bridge. So, you know, it's difficult for me. I don't want to proselytize. I don't want to. There are people out there that are wiser than I. And those people might have. You know, those individuals might 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 have been able to figure out this situation prior to being in it, like I was. But if I'm honest, if I'm honest, then I have to say, like that that was I needed that moment in order to recognize the fact that man, I did this to myself. I did this to myself. But the the greatest verity in that, this sage wisdom that came from that, which we all know, but we we know at different points in life that came about for me is the fact that you always have a choice. You always have a fucking choice, you know? And the, the most important fucking thing that I learned on that day, honestly, Serenity, and, and, and this was, you know, and I don't know if this... I hope that this will be valuable for you. I don't know. To me, it was very, it was, it was the most important lesson I learned in my life that, that I mean, that in that day was that, that this life is mine and that it is my one and only. And that's it. When that, when, when, when the subtlety and the, and the profundity and the, the reality of that statement seeps into your fucking bones. And when it ceases to be esoteric, poetic, hippie bullshit, when the pragmatism and the practicality of the fact that you're going to fucking die, you're going to die. This is what you have. This is it. This is what we have right now, right now. Then all the Miss Mitchells, right? And all the, and everyone before her and all the like, all that shit, that baggage that we have, all these fucking people that told us what fucking, you know, losers we were going to be in our life. All that completely gets faded away in the fact that this is it, man. This is all I have. These decisions are mine, not hers. I'm not going to relinquish that fucking type of power to her or to anybody else. And that, that I think, for me, like, I needed that moment. And again, there's people much smarter than I am, but, like, I needed that moment in order to come to that conclusion, you know? Sorry, I, I feel like I'm rambling, but... No, not at all. This is phenomenal. Uh, so one other question uh, around this mindset piece, and this actually comes from a quote uh, from The Life and Times of a Remarkable Misfit, uh, which is a collection of essays that you wrote, which is how you and I met, and I'll link that up for anybody listening in the show notes, Uh the greatest obstacle any of us in the developed world have to living a remarkable life is not outside pressure or finances. It's not economics or market conditions. It's the lack of courage to question the devils in our own mind that tells tell us we're not special enough. What I'm really interested in, in hearing is how you start to quiet the devil in your mind and realize you're special enough. You pretend. You know, you pretend. Like... <laughs> 
you know, the, the Shakespeare said it best, man. You know, people ask me this shit all the time, and they're like, "Well, how do I start to do so? I don't believe in myself. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm starting this thing." And like, you fucking fake it. You pretend. Shakespeare, and and this is one of the. Mo- I mean, Sha- I learned so much from Sha- William Shakespeare. So much from reading the plays and being involved in theater. And you know, at, luckily in 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 my twenties, because because of a man who helped save my life. And one thing that he said always sticks with me, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. In this world, like many times when you don't have, when you don't act, when you aren't actually the thing, you just have to act like you are. You know, you just have to act like you are. And we know this of novels, right? We know this in terms of adventure. We know this of story. Like when an adventure starts out on an adventure and in a story that we actually appreciate, you know, say Frodo, right? When Frodo leaves the Shire, he doesn't feel like Frodo. He doesn't feel like the Frodo who's flicking the fucking ring into Mount Doom. That's not the same Frodo. He's faking it. He's pretending at that moment. Like he, all he's doing and all that we need to do is like, you know, you, you, you think about a story and you think about the life that you want to lead and you think about the character that you want to be in that life, right? And in the moments when you don't have the courage to actually be that character and to make the decisions that that character would make, you just pretend and you just act it anyway. You do it anyways. You see what I mean? Uh-huh. That, that to me is like, and it's, it, it's kind of one of these great and, and, and unspoken verities in life because people see those that succeed or do well in life. But the one thing that those do, that, that do well in life and succeed, they don't sometimes come back and say is the fact that I was fucking faking it for a very long time. And everybody was doing it. Everybody's doing it. Because there are plenty of times in my early – I mean when I – oh my god, Srini, when I left my fucking job, man – and when I, when I took to travel the world and I started misfitting all this, dude, I had no idea what the fuck I was doing. I was terrified half the time. I was terrified. Absolutely mortified, man. And many of the times when I was making decisions and trying to, you know, like where would we go and what would you do and this and that, like I was absolutely mortified. But like so many of the characters and the stories that I admired through the ages as a kid, in those moments when I feared the worst, I stiffen my upper lip and I, I you just pretend. You pretend to be the person. You sit down at the typewriter. You think about the novel that you want your life to be. You think about the character that you – the protagonist that you are in that novel, the person that you want to be. And you start acting like that person before you are that person. And sooner or later, the person that you want to be and the person that you are will merge into one. Sooner or later, that will happen. And that's, you know, a little bit of what William Shakespeare taught me. Amazing. Uh, well, I want to talk about your work uh, for the rest of our conversation, uh, especially because it's had such a profound impact on everything uh, that I have done ever since I've met you. Uh, there's a level of thoughtfulness and deliberateness to literally everything I've seen you create 
Um, but you know, I, I hope in some way I inherited and stole from you, uh, and made my own in certain areas. But what I really want to talk about is the early days of all of this and how you eventually arrived at, uh, this way of, of seeing the world, this way of creating things and this very sort of deliberate ethos in every single thing that you choose to work on and put out into the world, which I realize is a massive fucking question, which we could talk about for three hours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you should <laughs> yeah. expect that by now. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, you know, it is, it is a big question. It is a big question. I will say that, um, misfit, um, you know, today, today Misfit is, a, is, is, you know, it's a collection of six different companies and I employ dozens of people across the world. And that to me is very fucking weird, my friend, because as you know, 90% of what I own fits on my fucking back and I am still the guy that I always have been and it should probably be illegal that I should employ that many people. And that's, you know, but from that whole, everything the Misfit is today, anything that somebody researches, looks into it, and now we're doing films and we got a digital agency that works internationally in our publishing house and blah, 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 and all this fucking horse shit. All that was born out of that decision that day to, and that decision was not to start a company. It wasn't like, oh, I'm leaving my, you know, I'm leaving this company and I'm going to start my own company. That decision was to live to, to for once and for all, stop living some other dude's life. To live a life that was deliberate, that was intentional, and that was flamboyantly mine. And that, it, that is the, that is absolutely the fucking foundation and the premise of everything that misfits built on. And I am not, I mean, you know, that, that has, I, it has never left me, not for a single solitary moment, not for a single solitary moment. So when I do something, when I get involved in a different industry, you know, whether it's publishing or filmmaking or, you know, a digital world or, or, or humanitarian work, and now we're getting into different things in the physical world, products and all that. When I get when I get involved into something, I always for me from an artistic perspective, it has to be it it has to be a a a a, a deliberate decision on me and 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 you know my crew, you know, Melissa and Jesse and, and the people on my team, Sibo and Dino, like our our decision to to do this thing. And to and whatever it might be, and then to intentionally move in it. And from a design perspective, if I'm going to get involved in it, then I'm going to get involved all the way. I'm not interested in making. I I've said on the record, mates, I'm not interested in personal wealth. I'm not interested in fame, and and many decisions that I make prove that I don't care. That is not something that interests me. I am not even interested in being successful. What I am interested in is being significant. So, and that, those two sometimes are wildly perpendicular goals. So when it comes to, you know, creating something when people, you know, and I, and I appreciate that, you know, the, the, uh, the conference that we produce, you know, MisfitCon, all this, you know, people say very kind things about our work. And I really appreciate that. Some people ask me, well, why don't you scale this? Why don't you scale that? You know, I, I look at them, I'm like, I'm a banker, man. Like, like, I don't know about scaling. You know what I'm saying? Like somebody really pinned me against the wall a few months ago and they were, and they were asking me about our, you know, our conference, this conference we produce in Fargo, North Dakota, Misfit Con, uh, 
Srini's been a couple times. We always have a good time out there, <laughs> you know? And, and uh, you know, the conference has no website. So there's no evidence that the thing is happening. There's no evidence that the thing happened other than a few Instagram photos that people shoot up. My crew, in terms of our content, we put nothing out. It's, it is a, you know, I, for me, it's a quiet and deliberate event and it's, it's, it's invite only. So I invite people that I meet throughout my travels through. I travel to 20, 25 countries a year and I, and I invite people that I meet and people that I think that would be interesting. And then I, and then we kind of design a five day experience. I was asked, well, why don't you, well, you know, and, and I, I've, I've been pressed against this, you know, why don't, why don't you scale up? Why don't you this? Why don't you that? You could do this. You can make more money, blah, blah, blah. You lose $30,000 in the event, but you, you don't have to. Cause you, and I'm like, I just looked at this person. I'm like, you know, I used to be in finance, right? You know, I have degrees in accounting and finance. I graduated of fucking summa cum laude. Like I, you know, I know how to do math, you know, like, it's not like, it's not like it's like, oops, I, I lost, you know, $30,000. For me, it's a deliberate choice. It's an intentional, I want to keep it small. Now, by keeping it small, there are, there are, you know, there's collateral damage. Sometimes that collateral damage is to my pocketbook. Mm-hmm. But I'm willing to make that investment for the belief in the thing that I'm creating, right? And that, and that to me is okay. And actually, I think there's precedent for that fact because every artist, visual artist, under the sun since time immemorial has limited the amount of, of the works that they produce, right? Some you see in the bottom right corner, you see one of 80, one of 20, sometimes one of one, right? Those are arbitrary limitations that they produce. I mean, in this day and age, it could be one of a trillion. I mean, you know, it's, it, you could just keep on printing things, you know, until, until the, the printer runs out of ink. And even then it's a digital print. You could continue going. But, but artists continue to do, and it's an arbitrary limitations. I believe in arbitrary limitations because arbi- the only thing that you have are the limitations that you, that, that you place on yourself, sometimes your art. You know, My favorite restaurateur in the world is a guy named Frank Perciano on the Lower East Side. He owns four, restaurant, four Italian restaurants within six blocks of one another in the Lower East Side East Village. Now, Frank, surely, smart guy, fucking brilliant restaurateur. These, I mean, if you go to Sauce in the Lower East Side, if you are in the Lower East, if you're in New York City, then you better go to Lower East Side. You better go to Sauce Restaurant. It is the best restaurant in New York City. You go, you sit in the bar, it's fucking amazing. I am sure that people have asked him, well, why don't you scale this? Surely he could build the next Olive Garden. But that's, that's not what Frank is interested in. What Frank is interested in is creating small, and meaningful moments of interaction that are intentionally and deliberately created by his own mind, and that's okay. So, again, I've rambled on, but that, that to me is an important distinction. Now, I don't think that it's bad that other people decide to scale. I don't think that that's a bad thing if that's what you intended to do in the first place. But don't be bullied into that. You know, that's the one thing I want to hear. I, I hope that your listeners are here. It's not, I'm not railing against like, you know, f- you know, I fucking love Apple, right? I'm, I'm talking to you on a back <laughs> yeah. air. You know, like I've got, I'm literally, you know, masturbating to my iPhone 6S right now. Like it's, it, you know, we're all, we, we, you know, so there are, there are elements of, of free market capitalism and scalability that, I myself am, am involved. So I'm not, I'm not decrying all of that. But what I'm saying is for me and my life, I, I question that and I say, well, I'm not necessarily interested in all that. 
There are certain decisions that I'll make that are more, you know, revenue based and depending on the business that we get involved in. But other things that, you know, are humanitarian work, which I've burned hundreds of thousands of dollars over the last few years. And that's okay for me, you know. And the main thing is, you know, if, if you're good at what you do, the current will always take you downstream. It will always, it, you will always move with the current if you're good at what you do because people are going to want more of it. They're going to want more, like you, Serenity. They're going to want more of your writing and more of your books and more of your, and more of your conferences and more of all the stuff that you put out there. That's okay if that's what you want. But maybe you say with your next book, for whatever reason, you wake up and you're like, you know what? I actually only want to produce 500 of these books and I want them to be fucking pop-up books that have like all these things coming out of them and the, you know, that look like spaceship. You know, whatever. Like, but you're... <laughs> You know, you're the artist, so that's okay. That's, you know, fine, fine. So you lose, you know, f- you know the opportunity cost of $60,000 of whatever, but that's, that is okay. You know, that's okay. And that's, that's what I think is important for people to hear, you know. And with Misfit, it's like, I'm never going to be famous, man. I'm never going to be famous. I'm not looking for fame. I'm not interested in that. What I'm interested in is not success. I'm interested in significance. So I want to ask you, uh, if this level of deliberate thoughtfulness and, and the quality of what you do uh, was what it was when you started, because I, 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 I'm, I'm, I've always been curious about that, and I've, I've seen almost nothing from the early days of what you guys have done. It's because I hide it, man. <laughs> Fuck. No way. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, no, I, I don't like you know the, the thing about quality and is is an artisanship. You get better over time, mm-hmm. right? So there are things that you know I look back at, which I'm sure we all we all do. But I'll just talk about myself. You know, I look back at the say I designed circa 2009 that I thought was hot shit back then, and now I look at it, I'm like, what in the fuck were you thinking? That is horrible. So I mean, there there is an element of that, you know, and you get better at your craft the more time you invest into it um as a designer you know whether that's as a designer of experiences um with events which i've produced many at this point or um you know visual uh design i you know i've i've gotten better over time so i i <laughs> i would i would be lying to you Sri, if i said i wouldn't lie to a friend i would certainly lie if you were anyone else no i'm kidding uh, <laughs> That, you know, that, that like somehow, like I was, you know, we were just born out of the womb and I, I was just amazing from there. Absolutely not. I fucking, I was horrible, but I was always, you know, and still to this day, you know, whenever we produce anything or I, you know, I produce anything at all, my inclination is never to focus on the positives, you know, no matter how much praise I receive from it or no matter how much praise, you know, we as, as a company get from the things that we do, you can ask any of my, my, my crew, you know, like I am always focused on like, wow, that's great. And that's wonderful that people are saying that, but don't believe that. Don't believe the hype because here's like, don't even lie to me. Could we have done this better? Could we have done that better? What about this? What about that? So it's this constant improvement, you know, um, and an improvement of the craft, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's for the sake of the work when you don't, when you're not working for money, when you're not, 
doing something simply because of the output you get out of it, then the virtue of creating beautiful things is because beautiful things is what the world deserves. So you end up doing that and investing yourself more into those moments, irrespective of whether people, I mean, there have been times when we've printed something where everyone thought it was fucking fantastic. I mean, universal, like positive praise, but I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh, fucking hell. You know, it just, it just was off center just a little bit, you know? Just a little bit, it was off. And then the fucking, you know, and I'm getting, I get the praise and all this, but I know, I know that we could have done better, you know? So that kind of plays into it a bit. Levels of insanity that I've inherited from both you and Greg Hartle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so one last question around your creative process, and then we'll wrap things up. Sure. Um, you know, one of the things that you've talked about throughout our conversation is various artistic influences like Shakespeare. Um, and also culture. Um, so two questions, you know, one, what have been the big artistic influences in your life and how has uh, being, being of Cuban descent uh, and the culture that you've brought with that influenced and shaped the work that you do today? Yeah. I mean, I'll speak to, I mean, in terms of being Cuban, I, that's hugely influential, I think in my life. Um, and I think there, you know, there are little elements of any subculture and of any culture, but but you know, just speaking of Cuban culture, there's. It's funny. I was in an Uber ride today with a guy who had, who was full blooded Cuban. He just came from Cuba ten years ago. And we were you know kind of talking about Cuban culture and this and that. And there was this one phrase which he immediately got, um, and he was because I was talking. He was asking me what I do, and I was telling him a bit about my story actually, and. He was like, man, that's, you know, that's amazing, blah, blah, blah. And I, and I looked at him and I was like, you know, my Cuban grandmother, I would always come back no matter what was going on in my life. I would come back to my Cuban grandmother, Mirta Jimenez, and I'd always go back to her and I'd tell her, hey, you know, she'd ask me. She has no, dude, she, strangely, she's never used a fucking computer in her life. She had no fucking clue what the fuck I was talking about or, you know, what I was doing, she thought it was this magical, the iPad was like a magical light box, like a wizardry box, the first time I showed one to her. So she has no clue at anything relating to my world whatsoever. But every time I come back, I tell her, Nanita, you know, estoy haciendo esto, la otra, whatever, and I tell her a little bit about what we're doing. And then she'd look at me stoically with a, you know, with a smile on her face, but stoically, and she'd say, echa pa'lante, mijo, echa pa'lante, which means keep moving forward. Whether it was bad news or the, whether it was good news, one thing, Cuban culture, you always, no matter what, you always put one foot in front of another. You keep on moving. And that is certainly, you know, certainly played deeply, deeply into my life, that mentality of uh, you just, you know, nunca pares, like, you keep on, you keep on putting one foot in front of another. Um, and then in terms of artistic influences, my God, man, so many, you know, there's so many, uh, definitely, uh, the work of, you know, uh, Keith Haring who was a street artist in the 1980s in New York city was, uh, very influential in my life. Probably, I mean, definitely in many, many people's lives, Keith Haring, Basquiat, um, you know, I mean, I don't say this lightly, but, uh, but, but Picasso, I mean, Da Vinci, I was, I, I went you know, I was in Venice about th four years ago, and I went to a Da Vinci exhibition. But it wasn't Da Vinci's finished works; it was Da Vinci's sketchbooks. So it showed all his works in progress, and some of which were um, 
military weapon. I mean, it was like it, it was just like a side of Da Vinci I'd never seen, and it showed this kind of the, you know the first Renaissance man, right? Um, you know, so there's a lot there, there's a lot of ancients that had you know Henry V, uh, uh, Julius Caesar. You know, there's there's a lot of ancients that had great great impact on. Um, at least their, their work, their words had on my life. Yeah. So you actually brought up another question that I realized I probably should have asked earlier in a conversation, but when you mentioned your grandmother, it, it made me think about this. Uh, throughout the entire process of, of Misfit and this crazy quest that you've been on, uh, you, know, you mentioned always put one foot in front of the other and keep moving forward. Have there been any major setbacks, like moments of just absolute terror at where you're mired in panic, fear, anxiety, self-doubt, like things, you know, seeming like they were going to blow up in your face. Fuck yes. Oh my God. Yes. There. Oh Jesus Christ. Yeah. The, yes. There was, there are plenty of moments where, um, where I thought all was lost, you know, where I sincerely believed that there was no way out and that I was, I was finished and that I was the great, you know, that I would be proven to be the greatest fraud of all, which was my greatest fear for a very, very long time. That, that actually, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't this guy and I couldn't do these things and everything that I believed about myself was a lie and that I, that, and that I was, you know, I was a jester and I was the greatest fool of all. Plenty of moments. I mean, there was one time in particular back in 2010 um, when I was sitting in Winston in the Winston Churchill Park in Prague, and a few things had gone wrong with some projects that we were working on. And I mean, we were like, you know, it was just at the time it was me, Melissa, and my buddy Dino and Misfit, and that was it. And a couple things had gone wrong, and then there was an accounting error that had happened that double-counted revenue. And then all of a sudden, so I thought that I had double of what I had, which was nothing. It was like $3,000. It was, it was literally like, it was mice nuts. But at the time, it was like feast or famine, you know? And, and then I realized when I looked into it, oh, my God. Not only don't we have this myopic little bit of revenue that I thought that we had, but we are actually negative right now. I have no money. I have no way of paying my my crew. And it, it was Dino and Drum at the time, MLS. I uh, this month. I also have. I personally, I have no way to get out of Prague, and I don't know how I'm going to get back home. I don't know. Like you know, I, I'm I'm at this B and B and. You know, I've got a couple more nights there, and, and and I remember I sat on a bench with Melissa um, in in the Winston the Winston Churchill statue in Prague, and I've been there since. And it was a, a big moment of victory two years ago when I went back, and I was like, "Fuck, I'm still alive! I can't believe it." And I just sat there, and I thought to myself, "We're done." And I looked at Melissa and for the first time ever. I had seen a little bit of hope deteriorate in her eyes, and it was it was sincerely depressing. And and then I said, <laughs> and I looked at her. I'm like, look, we got twenty. I forget what it was at the time. I, I, they weren't euros because they weren't on the euro yet. But it was like Corona. I don't know what the fuck it was. <laughs> and I was like, look, <laughs> this is all we have. Let's go get a beer. 
and, and let's figure out a way out of this. And when we did, and we went to go get a beer, and it was called, you know, Master's Beer in English. And, uh, and we had a couple beers, and we figured out, you know, this by, you know, this plan to get back to England, which at the time was kind of home, and do a couple things. And, you know, and dude, five, you know, five years later, um, I'm still standing. So, it's you know it uh, yeah and and that's not the only moment and I don't say that to you just as a funny story you know I I, I think that we don't talk enough about the times that things didn't work out and we don't talk about we don't talk enough about the times that we were afraid yeah. um, and the fact that you know we haven't you know I haven't always anyone who looks at my work today I haven't always been this guy you know I haven't. I, I was I was made into this guy by believing and faking myself into it, and then here I am. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. and and that that is that's that's a really important I think uh, lesson for people to for for people to ruminate on, particularly that are at the beginning of their journey. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I appreciate the, you know you saying that we don't talk about these moments enough. Uh, you know, because I've had my own almost lost moments. I mean, we canceled an event that was devastating. Right. Uh, but uh, uh, this has been incredible. So I have one final question uh, okay. for you, okay? Uh, which is how we wrap up everything. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh man, that is such a good question. God, I wish I had a better answer, um, or I wish I had a packaged answer. <laughs> uh, I so, and I know I've said this a couple times in this interview, but I think that what makes an individual unmistakable is when they make a deliberate decision to make to, to ensure that this one and only life that they possess is flamboyantly theirs when they when you are okay when you are okay not only with who you are but with being flamboyantly you and of course you'll be unmistakable. And there are no competitors at that point. Because the one thing, the one thing that we know for sure, Srini, is that in all of human history, in all of human history, there has never been a solitary other person with your genetic makeup, your DNA construct, your social, social economic upbringing. Anything that makes you you has never happened before, will never happen again. It has only happened this one time in you as a unique person. We all talk about unique selling proposition. What do we need to make? You know, when we recognize that you are your own unique selling proposition, as long as you recognize who you are, not only are you okay with it, but you are flamboyantly that, of course you'd be unmistakable. Incredible and poetic, as I expected it would be. Uh, it was fun. It's fun hanging out with you as always. Yeah. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for uh, coming back and subjecting yourself to my crazy questions. <laughs> it's always a blast, man. Next time yeah. we got to. Next time we got to do it live. And yes, in person so for sure. Uh, this has been phenomenal, um, and I, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us and uh, you know share so much of your story with our listeners. You're welcome, man. It's 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 a pleasure as always, my friend. Yeah, and for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. 
While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.